0: Welcome to this month's Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow. This month, we're reporting from the annual Cambridge Neuroscience Seminar, exploring why are some psychiatric illnesses, like anxiety and depression, on the increase?
1: In a sense, we have put ourselves in the, in quotes, luxurious position of being able to sort of reflect on
0: how we feel and how we are to an extent that wasn't present before. Could conditions like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, confer an evolutionary advantage?
2: done a study where I've looked at entrepreneurs and when I've actually asked them to fill in scales which are the same as what I asked for adults in the ADHD clinic to fill in, they actually score quite highly and one reason it might be there is to help us to take advantage of time-limited opportunities.
0: And we find out how one of the recipients of the Gret Lundbeck Brain Prize for 2014 might spend
3: his share of the 1 million euro winnings. Uh, my computer bust the other week So I think I might be buying a new computer, then indeed the idea of a sports car is very uh, tempting, but I think probably we'll be plowing it back into research in some way.
0: program, there's significant stigma surrounding psychiatric conditions. However, one in four of us will experience mental ill health in our lifetime. At any time in the UK, one in 16 of us will have a common mental health problem, like depression and anxiety. Mental ill health even affects more people and costs society more than, for example, cancer. So, scientists, clinicians, and the government are on the lookout for biological markers, including genetic tests, which could help identify people who are at risk of developing psychiatric conditions to catch them before they fully exhibit symptoms. To find out more, I met up with Professor Mike Owen from Cambridge University and Professor Barbara Harkin from Cambridge University. I started by asking Mike, why are there so many different psychiatric conditions and how much does genetics play a role? There's a big range of of
1: different psychiatric disorders and going from the the, the very severe uh, like schizophrenia and autism, intellectual disability and bipolar disorder, right through a spectrum to to, um, uh, disorders like mild depression and anxiety that are often treated by general practice practitioners or, 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 or clinical psychologists as to the role of genetics well actually genetics plays a role in pretty much everything and perhaps to different degrees but you know much of our behavior is influenced by genes I mean it's not it's not really surprising when you think about you know the fact that we're in uh, such a social species and that natural selection is very likely to operate on genetic variants so that influence behavior it's true to say that the more severe disorders seem to have a stronger genetic basis. The heritability uh, is higher. And, you know, as a, as a kind of rule of thumb... The the more severe disorders, the sort of relative contributions of sort of biology versus sort of psychosocial influence is probably greater than the milder disorders.
0: So if if a baby is born, are they going to develop schizophrenia or autism, for example? Do they have the genes at birth for that illness?
1: Well yes, what people inherit with regards to illness is not the genes for, but uh, a a set of genes that render them relatively more or less susceptible. To developing the disorder, you know there aren't genes for any of these conditions. There are genes influence, you know, proteins influence in, influence nerve cells, influence circuits, influence etc. etc. And um, you know we're dealt a, a deck of cards, if you like, and that renders us more or, or less likely to develop particular psychiatric disorders, depending upon a whole string of circumstances that occur throughout development.
2: Barbara. Just by way of an example of what uh, Mike was talking about, we had a paper with Matthew Owens and Ian Goodyear which looked at uh, children who had had adversity, um, and it was mainly psychological adversity, watching their parents fight and argue and scream at each other or hit each other in front of them. And then we followed these children up to adolescence and we saw that they had this negative way of thinking, which we could measure cognitively, Um, but it was this early adversity combined with this way of thinking and having the SS allele of the serotonin transporter gene which meant that in adolescence, unfortunately, they were at very high risk for developing depression. So it's this interesting combination, as Mike said, of these environmental factors combined with the genetic factors which uh, is so important. And this seems to be applicable for a whole range of psychiatric conditions, so you mentioned
0: autism, schizophrenia and also depression and anxiety. So in that case, do you think we'll, there will be a case where there will be early biological markers which will indicate, so you might go to a doctor's, for example, have some blood taken when you're a baby, when you're first born, and um, have your genes analysed, and then you'll see whether you are at risk of developing a psychiatric condition down the line, and if there's certain things that you should be aware of in, during your lifetime, and during the, during the development of the rest of your brain, that you should do to protect yourself. Do you think that might happen in the future? Um, well, I'm often asked that question, and, and despite
1: having studied genetics for a long time, I'm never really sure of what the answer is. I think, uh, I think that the, the brain isn't, you know, the most complicated system probably in the universe. I think people are perhaps a little naive in thinking that it's going to be terribly easy in the foreseeable future to predict very complicated uh, disorders like, like psychiatric disorders. But I do think that, you know, we will have some traction on being able to people at at, at different susceptibilities. There'll be rough and ready estimates on the whole. Now, the exception to this is there are some fairly rare genetic mutations that confer quite high risk of psychiatric disorders. And and many of the ones to date actually confer risk not just to schizophrenia but also to to autism, uh, intellectual disability and ADHD. And and there the risks are fairly high. And people carrying these mutations are, are already getting put in touch with services but they're usually sort of genetics services, uh, possibly paediatric and and neurologists and I think we haven't, you know, clinical groups haven't yet got their heads around what to do about the increased risk of of psychiatric disorders. These are exceptional, Uh, so mutations like this affect a few percent of people with schizophrenia but of course as we start doing more more sequencing with the new technologies that we've got where we can sequence the whole genome pretty soon Maybe more of these these rare things will come up, but in the great mass of the population, I think it's going to be rather you know, rather less straightforward, a bit more like predicting the weather perhaps
2: I think also there's obviously a lot of neuroethical issues associated yeah. with this type of area, so we have to be very concerned about those and thinking about those as, as things develop and uh, we know there's already so much stigma attached to mental health disorders which we have to work on obviously because I don't think it should be there because so many of us do have these problems we should be more forthcoming about them and I think it's changed quite a lot in the field of Alzheimer's disease but it needs to change much more in regard to mental health disorders as Mike says it's more rare conditions where it's so definitive and so much of the rest of it depends on you know environmental influences and what what the sort of positive promoter factors that you can do to make sure somebody has a good quality of life and that they don't actually develop one of these things so maybe what we'll move more towards is actually working with young young children and and then working with them in schools to help develop programs where they can you know develop their resilience and uh, and good brain health so that they don't don't succumb to these things and then also looking out for them earlier so that we can sort of nip it in the bud and either stop it happening altogether or really detect early and treat effectively so it doesn't become chronic and lifelong. And bearing in mind that one in four
0: people will experience mental health at some point in their life before these biological genetic tests might become available in the future, what can we do, what can I do to protect my mental health at the moment and what can I do to help my Nephew, who's five,
2: six, protect his mental health in the future. And, and my mother's, actually. <laughs> I mean, what can we all
0: do? <laughs>
2: well, I'm very much of the use it or lose it um, idea, and I think you have to keep your mind active. And one way we know how to do this is through lifelong learning. So it's always good to be learning new things, and we know that new learning generates uh, you know, neurogenesis, new cells in the hippocampus. So that's very important. There's other things like exercise. We know that also is responsible for neurogenesis in the hippocampus. So there's there's things that we can do to really you know, keep our minds functioning better for longer. And then there's other things that we can do that are good for mental well-being. So um, the idea of connecting and being in the moment, the kind of mindfulness idea, is, has been shown to be a um, evidence-based method for well-being. Uh, we, devi- we devised about five of these for the Mental Capital and Well-Being Project done by the Foresight Uh, and um, that was one of them. And another one had to do with giving because actually um, when they've looked at people giving to their favorite charities and they've had them in scanners, the reward system in the brain is actually activated. So the individual finds it very positive and rewarding as well as obviously the person that they're giving to. So giving is good for yourself as well as for the other person. So that's another thing that we can do. And then the other thing is support systems, social support systems that we need to be uh, more attentive to developing close relationships with family members and um, friends and uh, the community. And that has also been shown to be beneficial for mental well-being.
0: Thank you very much, Barbara, and also Mike, for giving your time to um, discussing these issues with us. I've got a few um, questions in from listeners, which it would be fabulous if you could spend some time answering. So David Bailey and Stephen Quill have been in touch saying, why are mental health problems so common? And are they more common now than they were, say, 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago?
2: Unfortunately, I couldn't answer about 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, but certainly there are certain forms of mental ill health which are on the increase, and those tend to be the stress-related ones. Um, it seems that globalisation, um, competing you know, with other people for jobs and things like that, is a very stressful event, um, unemployment's very stressful, debt's very stressful, and so in these times of austerity, the degree of stress tends to be raised, and therefore people find it, um, that they're d- developing more anxiety and depression.
1: Yeah, certainly. I think the, the evidence such that we have, and it doesn't go back very far, suggests that the severer disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar are probably uh, much the same. Or, 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 Autism, as, as far as severe disorders go, is a, an exception. But the question is, is that because we're recognising it more, or, or is there some environmental factor that's changed? But I'm interested sort of more generally, and I don't have a particularly scientific answer, with, with this sort of idea that you know modern life is you know, particularly uh, likely to precipitate psychiatric disorders. and I mean, I suspect we're more psychologically minded. In a sense, we have the kind of the luxury, put ourselves in the, in, the, in quotes, luxurious position of being able to sort of um, reflect on our, uh, how we feel and how we are to an extent that wasn't uh, the p- present before.
2: Well, Mike's made a good point because we know that um, from the Quality Care Commission that the prescriptions for... ADHD, in terms of stimulant drugs such as Ritalin has gone right up in the past five years, and um, the examples for why that might be that are given is that, first of all, it these disorders are recognised more so for instance for somebody's grandfather they might not have recognised that he had ADHD as a child so that's the recognition is much greater. The second thing is we thought that uh, years ago we thought that ADHD finished in childhood or adolescence and now we know that it continues on into adulthood. And on a similar note Susan Shurtleff has been in touch saying I've been told that anxiety can stem
0: from our innate flight or fight response to stressful situations. Is this true? So. Our feelings of fear and anxiety is something that we have evolved to, to have and it helps with our, our survival as a species.
1: Well, anxiety is a, is, a, is in, in many instances an, an adaptive response. You know, it, it is part of, it's a manifestation of the fight or flight uh, um, process. Uh, you know, the, the, the problems arise when it starts to sort of step out, you know, escape from its box and to be present in inappropriate to an inappropriate degree or in inappropriate situations. So it's a sort of, one can kind of speculate the same sort of things about other psychiatrists like depression, you know, sadness is, is a natural part of life, but it's when it escapes from its box that it becomes pathological, or we call it pathological.
0: And it sometimes can be quite useful to feel sad in response to a particular situation to try and help you to um, make sure that you don't encounter that situation again, for example, or that you learn from it. And Susan's also saying, are there other behaviours, for example ADHD, that are thought to be linked linked to traits that would have been useful for survival for our ancestors.
2: Well, ADHD um, actually done a study where I've looked at entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial behavior, and when I've actually asked them to fill in scales, which are the same as what I ask for adults in the ADHD clinic to fill in, they actually score quite highly. So the point is that if you can channel some of this uh, activity and that people have and this sort of you know um, enthusiasm for doing things, uh, it, it actually is quite successful. And one reason it might be there is to help us to take advantage of time-limited opportunities so some of these sort of um, uh, traits or features that people with ADHD have if they're channeled well can be very useful.
0: Thanks to Professor Barbara Sahakian from Cambridge and Professor Mike Owen from Cardiff. This is the Naked Neuroscience podcast with me Hannah Critchlow and this special episode is brought to you from the Cambridge Neuroscience Seminar for 2014. One special guest at the seminar was Professor Trevor Robbins, head of psychology at Cambridge University. He has just been announced as one of the winners for the Gret Lundbeck Brain Prize. What is this? Well, it's one million euros and much kudos for the winning European brain researchers. Now in its fourth year, 2014 saw Trevor a recipient alongside two other neuroscientists, Stanislas Hahn and Giacomo Rizzolatti. I managed to grab Trevor for a quick chat in between his delivering the Cambridge Neuroscience Plenary lecture. I started by asking what's been keeping his brain busy over the last 40 plus years of his career.
3: Well, I've been working in several areas. I suppose as a general topic. I've been working on the relationship between the frontal lobes and the rest of the brain. Uh, The frontal lobes mediate some of our higher functions They control our behaviour, help us to plan, make decisions and affect judgment and also exert control or self-control over our behaviours, stopping us from becoming too impulsive. And these frontal
0: lobes are located just behind our foreheads and it's very large in humans compared to
3: a lot of other species. Yes, I mean some people think it's disproportionately large in humans as compared to, say, a mouse, for example.
0: And what are the main findings of the last decades of of research?
3: Well, some of the main findings relate to particular circuits in the brain, which are present in animals such as rats and mice, and also present in humans, although they're much more highly developed in humans. We've also worked on how some of the chemical messengers in the brain, which also The same ones that are present in rats and in humans, how they modulate or affect the functioning of these circuits. and This is of therapeutic importance because some of the drugs we have for treating disorders such as obsessive compulsive disorder and also addiction and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder are quite effective, but they could be much more effective. So we're interested not only in how the behaviours are mediated by the brain, but also how to make them better, ameliorate them.
0: So your research has really helped us to understand more the brain circuitry involved in these behaviours of decision-making and also risk-impulsive and sometimes compulsive and addicted behaviours that... A lot of humans actually are affected by and also help to develop new treatments for
3: these disorders. Yes, indeed. It's interesting that we discovered not so long ago that rats that like cocaine, for example, like stimulant drugs, cocaine, amphetamine, methamphetamine, tend to be very impulsive. They tend to be very risky in their behaviour. And we took that idea and applied it to stimulant drug abusers and found indeed that Stimulant drug abusers obviously, by definition almost, do show impulsive and risky behaviours. But what we've been able to find is that these tendencies are present probably before they even start taking drugs. And so they may predispose the person to take drugs and thereby increase the impulsivity. And we think also lead from impulsive behaviour to compulsive behaviour. And we think we know how this happens in the brain as well, because... Addiction begins in part of the basal forebrain, that's the bottom of the forebrain, called the nucleus accumbens. That's where the initial hits of drugs are registered, as it were. But it seems, as you take the drug chronically, as you get exposed more and more to the drug, that it takes over other parts of the brain. And these parts of the brain are very much to do with controlling habits and automatic behaviors. And so we think that this automatic behaviour contributes to the compulsive drug-seeking behaviours you see in, in drug addicts or substance-dependent individuals.
0: And a large body of this has been found out by looking at rats that are self-administering
3: cocaine. Some of the ideas certainly stem from those animal models and also, in fact, ideas for treatment of some of these tendencies. So, for example, um, these high-impulsive rats can be medicated with drugs which are used in ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, to reduce impulsivity. So this has suggested to us that it might be an interesting treatment possibly for people at risk for addiction as a way to help them control themselves and not to indulge in these risky behaviours. We also are influenced obviously by what we see in the clinic and that helps us to improve the animal experiments as well.
0: And Trevor, just quickly now,
3: what are you excited about, about future research in neuroscience in this area? One end of the scale, there's genetics. So finding out, for example, if you've got a rat or a human that's very impulsive, what are the origins of this impulsivity? Is it based on their experience? Maybe they were stressed when they were young, or maybe it's their genetic makeup, or maybe a combination of these things. And I think unpicking that is going to be very, very important in the future. Then on the other side of things, the greater resolution we have in terms of imaging the brain and finding out where these circuits are and where they go wrong is also very exciting because imaging is getting better and better as it were, higher and higher resolution. So you can see really tiny changes in circuits which we think are equivalent um, in humans and other animals. I think this is a a very exciting prospect as well.
0: And lastly, Trevor. So. You've been one of the winners of the 1 million euro brain prize for 2014. How are you going to be spending that money? Are you going to be taking
3: your wife Barbara on holiday? we have had several ideas about this. Uh, My computer bust the other week, so I think I might be buying a new computer. That would be one thing. Then, indeed, the idea of a sports car is very uh, tempting, but I think probably we'll be plowing it back into research in some way.
0: That was Professor Trevor Robbins from Cambridge University on last week's announcement of his jointly winning the 2014 Gret Lenbeck European Brain Prize. And closing this month's podcast, I'm reporting from the Cambridge Neuroscience 2014 meeting, and I thought I'd get a glimpse of some of the other research that's being presented. So I caught up with PhD students Kate McAllister, Katie Manning, and postdoctoral researcher Martin O'Neill for their views. Firstly, Martin.
4: I like to work on Obsessive Compulsive Disorder uh, by Paula Banka and Valerie Voon from the Department of Psychiatry here in Cambridge. This work shows that patients with uh, OCD, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, are impaired in their ability to gather information uh, under conditions of uncertainty, rendering them more cautious in their decision-making when faced with uncertain information, And this caution or this lack of willingness to accept uncertain information may underlie the persistent compulsive behaviours observed in people that suffer from OCD. Uh, The reason this this research grabbed my attention was because my own research is on the basic brain mechanisms uh, involved in risky decision making and it's quite separate from OCD research. A lot of my research is is basic research so I'm I'm interested in how the, the brain functions and. You know, in, in normal day-to-day situations and, and risk, um, when I refer to risk, I also refer to uncertainty in the same way that, that this research does. And, and this is really embedded in most decisions that we make frequently. You know, very few things in life, you know, occur with absolute certainty. So so I'm interested in the basic mechanisms, but this research here shows that these basic approaches can also be applied to investigations of clinical conditions such as OCD. Um, But then in turn, uh, the findings from these clinical conditions are actually informing us also, you know, in in our um, sort of basic approach to, to, to neuroscience.
0: Thank you very much, Martin. Kate McAllister, what's caught your attention today? I was really interested in
5: Professor Ian Goodger's work outlining the establishment of the Neuroscience and Psychiatry Network, or NSPN, which is a collaboration between London and Cambridge. So the NSPN has been set up to create a database of adolescent brain data. So the teenage brain undergoes huge changes during adolescence, like two main ones, one of which is myelination, so improving connectivity between brain cells, and also synaptic pruning, So honing neurons and neuronal connections to their optimum. Teenage years are actually also a really critical time in developing neuropathologies. So a lot of psychiatric disorders begin in adolescence, and also it's the first time that we're most susceptible to risk-taking behaviours, so like drug taking and, and substance abuse and things like that. So the NSPN um, is going to, well it aims to look at between two and 3,000 typically developing people between the ages of 14 and 24. And they're going to look at participants using cognitive tasks, behavioural insights, but also scanning. Something that's been quite a theme throughout the whole day today that I've noticed actually has been the need for collaborative large-scale studies. Um, as much as we have really amazing neuroscience research going on at the moment, we still really don't understand that much about the brain. And I mean, we understand even less about the adolescent brain. Um, So I'll be really interested to follow this study and see what they find over the next few years about this really critical period of
0: neuromodulation. Thank you very much, Katie Manning.
6: So I thought a study done by Dr Timothy Rittman and Dr James Rowe and colleagues, mostly based here at the University of Cambridge, was really interesting. It looked at the hypothesis that neurodegenerative disorders, so disorders that progressively affect the brain, involve greater damage to areas of the brain which have more functional connections within the brain. So this is looking at how areas of the brain are connected in terms of communicating with each other rather than just in terms of anatomy.
0: And so they were looking at neurodegenerative disorders like for example Alzheimer's or more Parkinson's or Huntington's?
6: So this has been looked at in Alzheimer's before um, and they were wanting to see if this idea was also applicable to other neurodegenerative disorders. Uh, And in this study they looked at Parkinson's disease, progressive supranuclear palsy and corticobasal syndrome.
0: And and what is it exactly that they found?
6: They were using functional magnetic resonance imaging, so it's fMRI for short, to build up a picture of the network by looking at the activity in different areas of the brain and how that correlated with the activity in other areas. And one of the things that you find when you do that is that, there are some areas which get lots of connections to, from or through them, um, and these areas are called hubs. And so the hypothesis was that these hubs are particularly affected in neurodegenerative disorders and these areas would show the greatest connectivity loss.
0: So if we're looking at these um, hubs, these networks in the brain uh, as almost like a transport system of communication from one area of the brain to another. How would this compare to, for example, I don't know, a city like Milton Keynes, which is here in the UK, which has got lots of roundabouts, um, but lots of main road systems. And then if you look at London, for example, which has got lots of convoluted side roads. Is that the similar thing that they're looking at here in terms of these hubs and these nodes of
6: connectivity? Um, yeah, it is really. I mean, perhaps a, a good analogy to look at it would be sort of like, say, King's Cross Station. So
0: so King's Cross Station is one of the major train stations in London in the UK.
6: Yeah, people are travelling from all areas of the, the country to get somewhere else, and so that might be coming straight through King's Cross and just crossing over, so using it as sort of a stop on the pathway. So in this study, they had 150 participants, and some of those had uh, one of the three disorders. Uh, And then there were also some disorder-free participants. So these are, they're called control participants, and they're used for comparison. Uh, And participants also completed some tasks to measure their cognitive abilities. And for all three of the neurodegenerative disorders that were investigated in this study, the researchers did find a reduction in the connectivity of hubs compared to the controls. And actually, also as they predicted, they found that weaker hub connectivity was also related to poor performance on some of the cognitive tasks. <coughs> and so they suggest that these hub regions are, are particularly vulnerable in many neurodegenerative disorders, um, and that their reduced connectivity that might then be really important in understanding these disorders and in future. Be able to inform us in evaluating patients and providing information that might be useful for clinical treatment.
0: So I suppose the next step is, is looking at ways of making sure that the King's Cross train station in these patients' brain kind of gets up into gear and starts working again.
6: Yes, yeah, so I, I guess the next view for this treatment is down the line is, is how, it, how it can be used to, to help the patient groups. Uh, and in fact understanding the functional networks of the brain in both health and how this is affected in people with certain disorders and in people at high risk of developing these disorders is an area of neuroscience in which there's an awful lot of research going on at the moment.
0: Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this month. Thanks to Cambridge Neuroscience for this special podcast featuring Barbara Sahakian, Michael Owen, Trevor Robbins, Catherine Manning, Kate McAllister and Martin O'Neill, reporting from the Cambridge Neuroscience Seminar. I'll be back again next month to find out about autistic spectrum disorder. Could environmental pollutants play a role? Is it simply extreme male behaviours and can you diagnose newborn babies and start treating? We'll find out. If you have any comments or questions, please contact hannah at thenakedscientists.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can post on the Naked Scientists Facebook page and you'll find the full transcript for this episode and other Naked Neuroscience episodes on our website. That's thenakedscientists.com forward slash neuroscience. See you next month open our minds.